You're listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR 855 AM. Thanks for tuning in. 3CR is broadcasting from the lands of the Kulin Nations through caretakers, owners, custodians of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to the elders, past, present, and emerging, and we recognize that sovereignty has not been ceded and a treaty never signed. CCR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning, Judith. Good morning, Alice. Good to be here this morning and the 30th of September. That, that's going to mean there's some warm weather coming soon. At yeah. some point. Well, today, just, just talking about the weather, partly cloudy, 20% chance of uh, light showers this morning, but then at the top of 15 tomorrow, we move up to 21. I'm sunny. getting excited. Um, <laughs> areas of frost early in the morning, but uh, Wednesday is... 24 and apparently Thursday is going to be 27. So, and always accompanying a weather warning in spring is if you're on your bike, put that those funny helmets on with the little things because the magpies are. Swooping season, Alice wouldn't have oh, a clue no, no, what we're talking fact, about. I had to laugh because a couple of weeks ago, I remember when we were doing Plover Appreciation Day and all mm. things birds, and mm. I said, I'm, and Dean said, and then there's magpies, and all I said was, oh, it's so lovely hearing some yeah, yeah. magpies <laughs> early in the morning. And then I remembered afterwards, I saw someone, he had this bike helmet, and then these uh, sticks coming you know, out of it. plastic ties? Yeah. yeah. You haven't seen that yet? No. Well, yeah. why are people yeah. wearing these? Because the, the magpies swoop. In what, spring. and they try and take you... Well, they swoop. On the head. Uh, yeah, on the head. You could be walking, you could be riding what? your bike. Uh, they're pretty uh, protective of their nests, obviously, and you sort of... After the bushfires, which, you know, I don't want to go on a rant about, but obviously the bushfires happened in um, King Lake. Yeah. So what you found is a lot of the animals came down. So a lot of the magpies set up nests in the suburbs. So places like Rosanna, Greensboro, um, there's a magpie nest right at the front of my tree at my oh house. Oh my god, are you scared? Uh, well, they swoop me, but they never swoop the kids. Every time I go out <laughs> you the know, back. I, I, <laughs> have heard, I have heard they do facial recognition, Dan. Well, so, so have I, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so they decide that What did you you're, do you're to a magpie? Oh, well, I'll be honest with you, I did try and scare the they had two babies and they were in the backyard oh, and then all right. of a sudden they're because I didn't want them there and then the mum just started swooping me. Well, she worked it out. Obviously, they're yeah. smart. They're smart. <laughs> yeah, but, but their supporters you know, aren't. But if you don't know, yeah. I mean, I remember going for a walk. I used to walk by a river near where I live, and the first time it happened, I didn't really think did that bird really? Yeah. <laughs> And obviously their beak's really sharp, so it would yeah. cut you. But at any rate, Alice, it's just a brief period. It's just when they're breeding. And yeah. then it doesn't happen the rest of the year, which is why it comes to such a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, you watch. If you see people with bike helmets with little sticks coming out of them, I mean, some people just put sticks in. Oh, yeah. no. It's not a fashion thing. No, no. no. no we're not. Will, you know. When you come in with those sticks, and we'll think, oh, it's yeah, a fashion. She's, no, she's a real she's Melbourneite now. She's a new thing. <laughs> yeah. Always following trends. Yeah. Um, you know what? We, we haven't yet thanked Beyond Zero. Beyond we Zero. Do. Yeah, yeah. And 
coming up on the show. Mm. Big excitement. Lots of arts again. Alice. Yes, we've got at 8.15, we're going to be speaking to Jonathan Holloway, who is the Melbourne International Arts Festival director. And, yeah, he's going to come in and chat to us about the festival. Okay. Which starts on Wednesday. Oh, straight away. I've got a few tickets. I'm excited. Yeah. Yes, I am. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, we'll save that. <laughs> we'll yeah, we'll save that. Right yeah. Mm-hmm. And then what have we got at 8 o'clock? At 8 o'clock, we've got Epilepsy Foundation CEO, Graham Shears, talking to us about Epilepsy Walk. We had them, I had them on last year with uh, Wednesday Breakfast. It's one of those things, I think, for me, it's a bit personal. I had a friend growing up as a kid who had epilepsy. And, you know, as a six-year-old living in Africa and then being told by the parents how to help their son look after was it was at the time I think it was quite sort of progressive that the parents got all of the his friends around and told us what to do so yeah yeah Yeah. so um obviously epilepsy is um one of those conditions that you know you don't talk about but it'll be nice to sort of hear exactly what it is and what the difference between epilepsy and a seizure is and what the Epilepsy Foundation are doing to raise funds. Yes, and actually it is personal for me too because I've just heard that a nephew of mine in Canada has been diagnosed. He's about 10, I think. Mm, So mm. I think lots of us have been touched by it. It would be good to be doing that. Yeah. And at 7.45, we're going to be speaking to Dr. Nicole Lee and this is following um, the Australian Capital Territory and the legalisation of small amounts of cannabis homegrown cannabis homegrown mm. cannabis yeah um, and we're gonna yeah we're gonna be speaking to dr nicole lee about that yeah and it'll be a welcome and back and what's going to be yeah, your yeah. angle that's wow <laughs> I, missed, I missed that dude what did you say i said and what's going to be your angle Alice? Oh. <laughs> we talked a lot about angles last week and we'll fi- you'll find we we will all find out what that angle is going to be and um also we've got um you know it's kind of following the student protests I noticed a paper by Professor Jeremy Moss from Uni New South Wales with the intriguing title, When it comes to climate change, Australian, Australia's mining giants are accessory onto the crime. Mm. So mm. I thought, what's this going to say? So we'll find oh. out from him. That's at 7.30. We're also going to be um, revisiting the interview we did with Prue Flowers, Dr. Prue Flowers from Flinders University, around uh, the abortion debate or, or, and the bill to decriminalise abortion in New South Wales. It has now passed the upper house, which is good news. There's a few amendments that go back to the uh, uh, lower house. But what I was interested, why I was interested in replaying is just to remind us about some of the tactics of the right to life, mm. because we also see them across other issues as well, mm. not just uh, abortion. So. So that's coming up at about 7.15. We'll hear that again. So it was a 119-year-old law. You know, yes. It always amazes me that there's, there's still laws that are 119, 100 years old that are still yeah. sort of in existence in this era that we live yeah. in. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but maybe, maybe some music. Yes, some Dean's favourite here. We're playing this one, especially for you, Dean. And uh, here she is. That's the one, how did you know? (laughs) With Oita, the group.
That was a sister, well, sister girl and the song and with Uitha and in that group was Lady Lash. What a great name. Or Crystal Mercy. She's also called Crystal Mercy. A woman from Siduna living in Melbourne now. And a very varied music she's producing. It's great. Sorry, last week, September 26th, the bill to decriminalise abortion was passed in the New South Wales Upper House. And uh, interesting, because you'll remember there was all that, uh, you know, protest, all that stuff going on. It passed with 26 votes to 14. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And uh, it, but it, but really, it should have been a fairly straightforward because, mm. you know, over well over 75 percent of people in New South Wales and looking around the country are getting into those same figures um, support abortion, women's right to abortion and decriminalizing abortion, which is what it was about. So you, you can't be charged, you know, with a criminal offense if you have an abortion. Now, mm. but I mean, I mean, the fact that it, I mean, Private, it, you could have. Mm. Well, I mean, it, you know, whether it was used or not is another matter. Yeah. Although I do understand someone was charged in Queensland before they changed their bill um, a year or two ago. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, that's a that's a different story. So, um, the vote in on the bill in the upper house, New South Wales, was delayed by threats from the right and the Liberal Party, and some of them were going to even challenge the Premier's leadership. So there was, they were, they were mm. threatening the spill. Do you remember that? Thing? Yeah, yeah. That, that, yeah that, it's pretty. interesting. It sort of only lasted for a day or two, didn't yeah, it? Someone they, said, they, we're going to do it. Oh, we're not going to do it. Maybe we won't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think the story was they got a couple of concessions, but nothing that really changed the bill drastically. Uh, but oh, I thought it was really interesting that the Premier Gladys Perjiklian didn't turn up for the vote. Mm. Really? Mm. Well, well, she she supported it, but she didn't sort of turn yeah, up she for it. Yeah. Her vet somehow. Anyway, yeah. but she said she was busy running the state, and uh, I'm sure she was. But still, you know, from you know, political eye, you think, oh, what's going on there? Yeah. And but it was an interesting number too, uh, like well, a significant number because it it stated that the upper house adopted 25 of a possible 102 amendments. 25 is a lot when you're passing a bill, you know? Like I, it, don't, it, I don't think it was a 25. Mm, yeah, yeah, the upper house adopted uh, 25 of possible 102, including a name change for the, yeah, yes, from the reproductive sure. health care yeah. reform bill, you know, which yeah. seems, doesn't seem like a lot, but it's a quarter of. Yeah, I yeah. think, and in many ways, I think it was, um, you know, playing around the edges. Yeah. But it didn't significantly change the bill itself. Itself, yeah. And I think it was probably, a, you know, a, a, a gift, or not a gift, but a bowing yeah. to some of the people on the right. So we're going, just to, because this is likely this kind of activism from the Christian right and or from the right to life, let me be more specific, is to um, likely to follow over on other issues, for example, sexuality education. Whenever something like that comes up, as we had with the Safe Schools Project here, these are the people mm. that are often out on the streets and, um, you know, arguing for conservative uh, policies. So we're going to play, replay excerpts from the interview we did with uh, Dr. Prudence Flowers, Pru. Um, we did that interview in, on August 26th, so about a month, over a month ago now. And uh, let's just hear some of the things that she has to say. So I began by asking her what proportion of people in New South Wales supported the decriminalization of abortion. It's a very high proportion, Judith. In a very recent survey conducted around the 
current kind of decriminalisation moment. New South Wales residents indicated that 73% of respondents supported full decriminalisation and a poll a few years ago when decriminalisation was also being discussed actually had higher rates of pro-choice support. That 2015 poll indicated 87% of respondents believed a woman should be able to have an abortion and only 6% opposed abortion in all circumstances. And those New South Wales polls are completely in line with a really long polling history of Australia more broadly where there is fairly consistent, steady and deep public support for abortion rights for women. New South Wales, is is it one of the last states to decriminalise abortion in Australia? It is one of the last states. So it is unusual in that it has never updated the place of abortion in its criminal statute. South Australia did liberalise its abortion laws in 1969, but it's South Australia and New South Wales, which are the two states in which abortion still remains in the criminal law. It seems a bit odd that there's such um, protest going on in New South Wales about this new legislation, which will just bring New South Wales in line with other states. Probably the depth of sentiment in New South Wales at the moment comes from both the fact that there are several leading federal former or current politicians who oppose abortion, and so they're intervening in this debate. But New South Wales is also coming in kind of a trajectory of decriminalisation measures. Well, with those figures, it should be fairly easy to pass this legislation. Mm -hmm. Are we being subjected to influence from a this issue? I think where we're seeing the influence of particularly U.S. movements against abortion, is the way in which politicians approach decriminalisation. In New South Wales, there have been an array of amendments proposed, most of which didn't get up in the lower house, but they really reflect concerns that originated in the United States and then have been kind of exported outside. What is significant in the New South Wales case is that they are supposedly indicating that they're willing to consider an amendment that would prohibit abortion on the grounds of sex selection, which is a U.S. strategy. What does that mean, Prudence, sex selection? What they mean is someone who goes to a doctor and finds out that they're having a baby that is a certain sex and then they choose to terminate because it is that sex. They're referring to the preference in some immigrant communities for boy children. So this is a strategy originated in the US in the 2000s and it was part of a broader strategy that was attempting to present abortion as an act of discrimination. The idea that there's this problem with sex-selective abortions has spread more broadly. So in the UK, in the 2010s, there was a lot of national, I'm going to call it hysteria, around a supposed epidemic of sex-selective abortions, and this was really pushed by the tabloid media. What evidence is there, say, in Australia that this is going on at all? There is not evidence. In fact, the New Daily published a really great article talking about the fact that the evidentiary basis that people in New South Wales are using, they're misinterpreting and misrepresenting what it actually says. So a few years ago, there was a large study conducted by Latrobe about not sex-selective abortion, but about gender discrepancies in birth. And it did note that in amongst some communities or some immigrant communities or ethnic communities, there were discrepancies between the number of boys and girls born over a certain kind of period, but they didn't attribute that to sex-selective abortion. And in fact, they were quite careful to say that that could come from a number of factors, one of which could have been IVF. So there's not evidence. I think a lot of this is a manufactured fear, and I think it's significant that it was brought up in Queensland but didn't gain traction there. It's been brought up in South Australia. This is part of a kind of strategy, and I think it's important for people to realise that it's not describing reality. 
So how does the New South Wales bill to decriminalise abortion compare with legislation in comparable Western countries? I guess I would call it fairly moderate or even fairly conservative. So New South Wales has modelled its bill pretty closely on the Queensland decriminalisation bill from last year. And one of the things that I think is important to note, given all the sort of misinformation about what New South Wales is proposing, is that it has a gestation limit of up to 22 weeks. So women can seek abortion up to 22 weeks. They can access abortion after that if two independent doctors approve. So that's something that people like Barnaby Joyce, people like Tony Abbott, uh, people like both the Catholic and the Anglican archbishops in New South Wales have claimed means abortion is available up to birth. And they've used, I would say, Donald Trump-esque language to describe what the bill is permitting. And that's simply not accurate. There's all kinds of medical guidelines and codes about when doctors can ethically perform procedures and for people to be seeking terminations after 22 weeks. In the majority of cases, that's for reasons of severe fetal anomaly. And we know that from all kinds of data from across the Western world. And the other reason why women or pregnant people seek terminations after 22 weeks is because of often really complex and difficult personal social circumstances that might include things like drug and alcohol addiction, domestic violence, homeless. It's often people in the most difficult situations who are the most vulnerable who seek terminations after 20 weeks. What New South Wales is proposing is not this kind of radical and extreme measure. It is in some ways more conservative than a lot of what is out there in the kind of comparable Western world. And that's Dr. Prue Flowers from Flinders University. And, of course, um, the decriminalization of abortion is not yet uh, finished. And uh, I asked her more about, to tell us more about the efforts to decriminalize abortion in South Australia. And uh, this, this, here's what Prue had to say about what was proposed in December last year, what happened. Greens MP Tammy Franks introduced a decriminalization bill in December last year. She introduced it in the Legislative Council. Which is the upper house. Which is our upper house. As that was happening, because it was kind of known she was going to introduce a bill, her staffers were receiving verbally abusive phone calls and also threats, which included what Tammy Franks described as violent rape threats. And that was reported to police, and thankfully nothing further happened there. But in the South Australian context, we've seen some interesting examples of U.S interest in our state and clearly this is coming from opponents of abortion in South Australia reaching out to US allies. So during April when there's nationwide in the capital cities a big anti-abortion clinic protest event which is called 40 Days for Life, South Australian opponents of abortion brought out the chair of 40 Days for Life from Texas and they brought out some other anti-abortion activists from the US as well and brought them to parliament to talk with political opponents of the decriminalisation bill. So that's not a hidden thing. There are photos of those US right to lifers on the floor of the SA parliament with certain SA politicians. And uh, as a fairly small state population-wise, South Australia would be fairly easy pickings, I guess. There have historically always been connections in Sydney and in Melbourne with the US right to life movement, but those have tended to be more group-to-group rather than politicians bringing out and engaging with right to life activists. So historically, there's the Australian Right to Life Federation and then there's Right to Life Australia, which are based on the East Coast. And they have consistently brought out leading right to life opponents of abortion over the decades. What is interesting to me is that they seem to have sought out people that are kind of on the extreme end of US abortion politics. They're the people who are seen as really being able to galvanize others. 
So they've brought out people like Father Paul Mark, a really internationally influential, what we call an absolutist. So he opposes abortion in every instance, including to save the life of the mother. They've brought out a man called Joseph Scheidler, who's actually the kind of godfather of the type of clinic protests that are now normal with what they call sidewalk counselling. He began all of that in the 70s. A few years ago, they tried to bring out an incredibly controversial activist called Troy Newman from a group called Operation Rescue. Troy Newman had his visa cancelled and was deported because in some of his writing, he had questioned why abortion doctors are not executed. And some other people who work for that group have tried to kill abortion doctors in the past. This is in the United States. Yeah, sorry, in the United States. Mm -hmm. So part of that is that these people are seen as inspiring figures. Australian right to lifers do seem to be drawn to what I would see as the farthest edges of the US right to life. Which is kind of incredible given Mm. Australia's history of supporting abortion Mm. reform. And of course, this would not be the only issue right to life would be active on. Australian right to lifers are, are also very interested in things like euthanasia and also IVF. Because abortion has not been as much of a political issue here, I think they've directed their energies, more diverse targets. As a social movement, they're a very small phenomenon. There are people who regularly protest, but these are relatively small groups. What they do have are kind of allies, particularly at the federal level, and I think that amplifies their views. And that was Dr. Prue Flowers from Flinders University. And she's a historian who focuses on social movement activism, modern conservatism, medicine and public health, and the politics of gender, sexuality, and the body. I mean, she'd be busy, right? (laughs) There's just Mm. so much Mm. there. And we will put a link to that article on how the U.S. um, right-to-life movement is shaping the abortion debate in New South Wales. Yeah, but I think, no, just time for a little bit of music. Anwar Brahim. on from the amazing student strikes last week, last Friday, we've been kind of following lots of different stories. There's been a lot appearing in the press around that. And an article that I read last week by Jeremy Moss, who's a professor of political philosophy uh, at the University of New South Wales, I posed an interesting question, I thought, and useful question. Um, so when it comes to climate change, Australia's mining giants are an accessory onto the crime. So I invite him to come on this morning to talk with us about his article. So welcome to 3CR, Jeremy. Uh, great to be here. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you. And uh, so I'm wondering, you know, what? why did you write this article? Well, I wrote it because there's so much focus when we come to talk about climate change on the role of states, and of course that's appropriate. Uh, But when I started doing some digging into how much emissions were produced from the fossil fuels that our our big miners like Glencore and BHP and so on extracted, I realised that those emissions 
are, when you add them all together, larger than the emissions produced by 25 million Australians. I mean, that's so incredible. That's, that's incredible. Yeah, so it is incredible. And I think given the, the size of the emissions produced from the fossil fuels they extract, I think we should be trying to understand what kind of responsibility those com- companies have for those emissions and the harms that they cause. And I argue that they should be seen to be an accomplice to the harms of, of climate change because they're doing something that's essential to, to the outcome. That is, they're providing the fuels that in turn cause the emission. Yes, and you say in your paper that uh, these companies uh, have no legal responsibility for these, and you quote unquote, exported emissions. That's right. So, so how we counter, how the, how the UN process counts emissions is that, say, a country, and by extension a company, is responsible for emissions when they're produced within the territorial boundaries of a country. But Obviously, what happens with exported fossil fuels like coal or gas or oil, when the fossil fuels are consumed, the emissions get uh, counted in, in other countries' carbon budgets, and uh, those companies don't have any responsibility for them. And, and I think that's, that's a mistake. I think we shouldn't see things that way. In the same way that we get upset in Australia, and rightly, when we when the, the sheep or the animals that we export uh, end up being being killed or abused in, in uh, cruel ways, we think that we are responsible in part, and, and we are. Same with uranium. If we were to sell uranium to a failed state and something bad were to happen, I think we would be in part responsible. And I think the commodity of coal or gas should be seen in the same way. Yes, and I found it interesting you say that while they don't have legal responsibility, morally... It is comparable to selling uranium to a failed state. Yeah, look, it's less dramatic, but I think morally they ought to be held responsible for that. So I I think the costs that have to be borne by the publics of the world when we deal with climate change, whether it's trying to stop it or trying to fix up the damage that's already occurred, I think the companies ought to assume a role in paying for those costs. Yes, it sounds like they're kind of slipping under the radar of accountability. Yes, it is. And in a way, that's odd. It's a good way to put it. But when you think about the size of these companies, you know, BHP is one of the biggest companies in the world, one of the the biggest miner, I believe. Uh, Hard to think they can slip under the radar in a way. Yeah, and And if if BHP were a country... Uh, you know, what would they be? What would they look like as a country? They'd be top ten in the world, I think, because the emissions that come from their exported fossil fuels, not just from Australia but all over the world, according to figures that they report, are larger than Australia's national emissions. So they're, they're right up there. They're making a huge contribution to greenhouse gases being put into the atmosphere, increasing the risk of climate change. So uh, BHP is um, is is uh, making a very large impact with uh, its mining operations. And Jeremy, it doesn't come as much of a surprise that I guess um, the importance of our mining industry in supporting our overall economic growth is what drives all of this. That's true. So uh, of course there was articles in newspapers today about uh, how much the the miners are you know contributing to the economy mm-hmm. and so on. But look, I don't think we should just accept those figures and say, oh, well, we can't do anything. That's um, right. I think we, we, we need to ask a number of questions. And the first question is, well, you know, these are just raw figures. These mining companies are 80% on average foreign-owned. 
they get huge subsidies. According to the IMS, the International Monetary Fund, uh, in 2015, mining got $29 billion from uh, Australian taxpayers in the form of pre- and post-tax subsidies. And a lot of them don't pay tax. Which know, leaves no like room that. for morality then, really, you know, well, on their part. Well, yeah, so, so look, some of them do pay tax, of course, but some of them don't. So I think, first of all, there's no question that this generates a lot of revenue for these companies and, and for Australia, but we have to ask what kind of revenue that is. But secondly, I, and I think the more fundamental point, is just because something makes a lot of money doesn't give you the right to do it. If a dictator paid us lots of money for our uranium, it doesn't make it right to sell it. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it reminds uh, me of um, of um, Trump's argument for selling arms to Saudi Arabia. You know, it doesn't matter that they murdered Khashoggi, you know, the journalist. Uh, they give us lots of money. <laughs> so that's just a side issue, Jeremy. But I think it, yeah, again, raises yeah. a point, yeah. It's also the case that um, if it is such a profitable industry, then I, I don't see why it shouldn't also use those profits to address the harms that they're contributing to. I think that's, that's a very important thing to bear in mind. So BHP got a lot of positive press a few months ago when it set up a 400 million US climate initiative. But as I said, they produce emissions from their exports that are larger than Australia's. If you think $400 million is, is enough to sort of to offset those kind of magnitude of emissions, uh, I think that's, you know, that's not likely to be the case. I mean, given, you know, the student protests and the fact that absolutely we need to reduce these emissions, I mean, there's just no question about it. If the planet's going to survive, do these companies, uh, do they see... Any future in moving out of, you know, fossil fuels into renewables? I mean, you know, ultimately, they're going to either end the planet, <laughs> which will end their business, of course. I mean, is there, are they looking at renewables at all? Do they see a future? I, I don't think for these big companies, renewables are in any way a majority of their activities, certainly not the ones I look at, so Glencore or Yancol or BHP. Selling renewable energy isn't a core part of their business at all. But it's a very interesting point you raise also because these companies are not silly. They see the writing on the wall. And so they are thinking, and in some cases have, tried to exit various fossil fuels. So Rio Tinto, one of the biggest coal miners, sold its coal operations to the Chinese company Yang Coal for five point something billion dollars. And that, that I think raises a very interesting problem because that's great for Rio. They made a lot of money. They now don't sell coal and that's a good thing. But coal is still being mined and produced by the company that bought their operation. So that's the climate right. is no better off. Mm, no yes. better off whatsoever. And what's more, there was this huge profit or revenue, I suppose, raised by Rio. That just went back into operations. As far as I know, it wasn't used to compensate anyone for the harms that uh, they'd contributed to. So Australian lives and, I guess, the natural environment are at risk, as well as, ultimately, that economy that they're talking about, because once the coal runs out, the money runs out, essentially. Yeah, Yeah, so the different types of coal they produce does sort of matter here. So, So those companies producing thermal coal, that is the coal that produces electricity, uh, they're on much shakier ground than those companies producing metallurgical coal, that is the coal that is used in steel production. Thermal coal there's an alternative for, 
which is renewable energy, that export trade is in jeopardy, whereas the export trade in metallurgical coal probably has a longer life because there's less alternatives to that. So we need to be aware of that as well when we're looking at the likely future of these industries. We're going to have to wind up in a minute, but I understand you've set up a website outlining the argument you've put forward in the paper, but also lots of other information. Can you tell us us a little bit about that? So the website is trying to understand what the moral arguments are about climate change, because often we hear a great deal about the contribution of science, and that's true, but ultimately climate change is a moral problem because We care about it because it has an impact on us, it causes harms, and that's a moral issue. But we also have to decide what to do. We have to decide to fairly distribute the benefits and the burdens of doing something. And they're all moral issues, and they lie at the heart, I think, of our thinking and response about climate change. And the site just tries to tease out some of those issues. Can you just tell us the the website and how do people get to it? It's called climatejustice.com. Well, thank you so much, Jeremy, for coming on the show this morning. It's been really good to have the moral argument, the political argument, and I really appreciated that perspective. So hopefully we'll have you on again before too long to perhaps uh, tease out that argument a bit more. That's very kind of you, and we're about to release a big report, actually, on the the carbon majors. So uh, that's coming out in a couple of weeks during Climate Week. uh, Wonderful. I love the term carbon majors. I can't take credit for that, unfortunately, but um, very appreciative to be on the show, and uh, thanks very much. Thank you. And that was uh, Jeremy Moss talking about, um, yeah, his paper. When it comes to climate change, Australia's mining giants are an accessory onto the crime. Scott Morrison last week with his speech, gee, it was... It uh, was an embarrassment, wasn't <laughs> it? It was an embarrassment. I, I, I thought it would have been good to get Jeremy's point of view, but I was just like, no, it will be going on a different tangent. Then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I did listen to it a little bit, and I was just like, yeah. how can this guy be serious? I mean, there's so many tangents, there's mm. so many ways of looking at this. So, yeah, it would be good to talk to Jeremy again, maybe on some other issues as well. Absolutely. Mm. Um, I think we'll just take a really quick break, and then we're going to come back to Dr. Nicole Lee. You're listening to 3CR, and we're now going to speak to Dr. Nicole Lee. And this is this is basically after... The ACT becoming the first Australian jurisdiction to legalise the possession, use and cultivation of small amounts of cannabis. So, Dr Nicole, thank you for joining us today. Morning. Good morning. Um, Can you just first off by sort of give us a little bit of a lowdown on what happened on Wednesday? Yeah, so the the ACT Lower House passed a bill that is pretty uh, historic. A historic bill for Australia, I think, mm. um, that, as you said, legalised possession of small amounts of um, dry and wet cannabis and allows growing of um, two cannabis plants per person or four per household. And what's the difference between dry or wet cannabis? Well, it's just the moisture. So when it's first harvested, wet is probably, it should be in inverted commas, um, when it's first harvested, it's still got a lot of moisture in it so it's a bit heavier so there's a 150 gram limit for fresh cannabis and a 50 gram limit for dry cannabis so once it's dried out the moisture content's gone so it's a lot lighter. And when will when will the change um, actually come in are we looking at that next year? 
Yeah, so um, it's pegged the 31st of January 2020, um, the law will come into effect. And, and what can we see happening before that day and, and then after? How is it going to be changing? The ACT is actually one of the more liberal jurisdictions when it comes to cannabis in Australia. They've had a de- decriminalisation of possession and use of cannabis for uh, 27 years now. Mm. Um, so there's, uh, this is a kind of small step in the next, the next direction towards um, full regulation of the market. Um, but nothing will change between now and the 31st of January. People who are caught with cannabis in their possession, uh, even the small amounts that are under the new legislation, will still be hit with a fine, which is the current system now. Nicole Dean here. I mean, obviously the changes, um, the new legislation will allow adults to grow cannabis plants at home. What, what does this mean? What are some of the safeguards that need to be in place? Uh, what will it mean for driving under the influence, for example, of all of those things being taken into account? Yeah, so this legislation doesn't affect uh, any of those other laws and mm-hmm. there is going to be, I'm predicting there is going to be a bit of a conflict with those laws. Um, but the safeguards around uh, growing of cannabis that the ACT have put in place with this legislation is that it has to be kept securely, uh, it can't be accessed by children and young people, uh, cannabis smoking near children and young people under 18 is still an offence and to protect uh, young people. The law only applies to people over 18 and so people who are under 18 still get the cannabis um, offence notice which is essentially the fine. And just to be clear, this has nothing to do with the medical side of it, it's just the legislation that you can grow it. That's right, it's purely for recreational use. So um, the, there are separate cannabis laws in most states and territories and um, they're all, they've been in place for a couple of years. Um, but this is completely separate from that process. Mm. And how does this compare with jurisdictions overseas? It's a pretty cautious step towards regulation. We're not talking like the free market commercialisation system that the US has put in place. You'd kind of expect the US to do that kind of thing, but that's probably at the more extreme end. At sale, for example, is still prohibited in the ACT. It's really just for homegrown and for small amounts of use. Judith, did you have a question? Well, I did. Uh, So, so Nicole, we have this kind of a funny situation where we have the the federal government saying, you know, they're going to do something to crack down on this new law and because the federal laws are different from the laws in the ACT. And there's a similar situation, of course, in the U.S., uh, where certain states have have legalized uh, cannabis and the federal law is different. So I don't know if there's any comparison between those. Well, I guess in the sense that we do have federal laws that usually trump state laws, but for drug regulation, uh, the states generally make the law. So there is some question about how that interaction is going to happen. We're still to find out what the what the federal government is planning to do about it. Mm-hmm. And can you talk to us also a little bit about the potential social impact of decriminalising cannabis? In terms of motivation, it's hard to say why now, but clearly over the last 10 years, um, there's been an increase, increasing support for the liberalisation of our drug laws. It's, it's pretty clear 
that prohibition isn't getting the effect that um, it had intended. So it hasn't reduced um, use and it hasn't reduced harm at all. Yeah. So um, we're, we've been talking, um, many people from many sectors, including um, some government, police, health, uh, health and welfare professionals, have been advocating for um, a change in the way we approach drugs more generally. And Nicole, we've had Greg Denham on here uh, from Law Enforcement Against Prohibition talking about harm reduction and things like that as a step forwards, you know, instead of just locking people up, but making the move uh, forwards. In your mind, how, how do you think that this can go in some way of, of I guess, helping that the problem we have? I mean, obviously, this is cannabis. It's not everything else, but it, it's a small step forward, isn't it? Yeah. So in this case, because it's just one small step forward, the biggest impact is probably going to be um, the reduction in harm of coming into contact with the criminal justice system. So um, things like having a record or um, the fines or you know, being kind of caught by police and the, the, sometimes the trauma that goes along with that. So all of that's taken away from use and uh, possession and cultivation. Um, but it's Still, there's still a lot of room to move in terms of removing sale from organised crime because the sale of cannabis is still um, a criminal offence and still illegal uh, in the ACT and elsewhere as well. So there's still, in terms of regulating the market and bringing it under a more uh, regulatory control, uh, there's still quite a few steps that we can, we can take um, forward from here. And Nicole, Judith here again, I know that you've also written about the history of drug laws. And uh, and my sense is that how uh, cannabis became illegal in the first place is kind of uh, politically fraught. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the way that most of our drugs have become illegal really comes down to um, political motivations and ideology and, in some cases, um, some level of racism and protecting markets and those kinds of things, not really to do with whether the drugs are harmful themselves. And, in fact, uh, most people would assume that drugs are illegal because they're dangerous. That's why most things are illegal. But the reason isn't actually related to their risk or harm and, in fact, they're made more dangerous in many cases by the fact that they are prohibited. And we have seen um, more than 800 new drugs come onto the market in the last 10 years because of prohibition. Yes, and, and it puts money into the hands of criminals, as you say. And, uh, of course, uh, when this first happened in the U.S., uh, the criminalization of cannabis, it was often people using it were often African-American people, Mexican-American. Um, and so, you know, it was quite easy to vilify certain groups of people who were already being discriminated against in the U.S. That's right. And one of the benefits of um, further regulation is that then these products can... Um, come under taxable sale, for example, and it frees up police time and it does remove that criminal element from the, yes. the manufacture yeah. of drugs. And it was decriminal or legalised in Canada just a year ago, cannabis. That's right. Yeah. yeah, And I don't think things have fallen apart, as far as I know. <laughs> I mean, speak to my sister regularly. She hasn't seen anyone on the streets have grown horns or got, you know, funny, <laughs> funny fur on their faces or anything like that. No, there hasn't been even um, in the in the U.S. 
so US, Uruguay, Canada and some other jurisdictions have all legalised um, cannabis and there really hasn't even been a huge increase in the number of people using it. So the doom and gloom is it doesn't hasn't come to pass at all. Mm. And what's the reaction been like since Wednesday? How has it been received, this new law? Certainly from harm reduction advocates, it's been well received. The, my sense of the media reporting is relatively neutral to positive, which I think is a positive thing when it comes to illicit drugs because there's often a, a lot of kind of pejorative reporting and stigmatised type of reporting. But in this case, it seems to be very well received. And it's not surprising because the vast majority of Australians would like to see drug law reform in, in this direction. So I think that it just recognises the community supports um, better regulation of drugs in and bringing them under regulatory control instead of uh, on the black market. And do you think um, other jurisdictions will follow? It's hard to tell, but the Productivity Commission in Queensland recommended going this way as well um, just recently, and uh, there's moves in the Victorian Parliament to put legislation to legalise uh, cannabis in Victoria as well. So um, certainly moves in other states to look at prohibition and look at a different way of doing things. Such a positive move forward, in, in my opinion, absolutely. Um, and thank you so much, Dr Nicole Lee, for joining us today and talking to us about this. Thanks, folks. And that was Dr Nicole Lee talking about how the ACT has become the first Australian jurisdiction to legalise the possession, use and cultivation of small amounts of cannabis. Mindfulness music there. Um, on Sunday, the 20th of October, thousands of Victorians will walk for epilepsy at Princess Park in Carlton in support of the Epilepsy Foundation. Essentially, um, epilepsy is sometimes called a seizure disorder. It is a disorder of the brain, and a person diagnosed with epilepsy um, can, sorry, a person can be diagnosed with epilepsy when they've had two or more seizures, um, and I guess a seizure is a short change in normal brain activity. The Epilepsy Foundation has created Australia's national epilepsy plan, Epilepsy Smart Australia, which provides support and guidance to individuals and families living with epilepsy. Joining us today to discuss the walk and their commitment to finding a cure is Epilepsy Foundation CEO Graham Shears. Good morning, Graham. Oh, good morning. Thank you for joining us on 3CR. Um, firstly, I just thought I'd start by asking, uh, I mentioned to our listeners earlier that I, as a, as, a, as a child, had a personal experience with a friend who had epilepsy. Um, how common is epilepsy? Uh, Dean, around one million people will be diagnosed with epilepsy at some stage in their life, so it's um, a pretty significant number of people. Mm. And, and and I guess uh, you know with that then how, how is it diagnosed? Because I just sort of mentioned then it is the most common condition affecting the brain. 
So generally it's diagnosed by, um, you know, people experiencing some uh, symptoms that uh, are strange to them. They go and perhaps see their GP and um, end up being referred to a, a neurologist or an epilepsy specialist. Um, and uh, often the diagnosis is supported by uh, people who've observed, you know, family and friends who may have uh, observed uh, seizure activity or taken videos of it that um, can be shown to the medical specialist. Um, otherwise, um, often people will go in for what's called uh, EEG monitoring um, or will have an MRI scan of their brain, see if they can find any underlying issues that may have been causing the seizures. Um, but it's, uh, it's almost a condition that's... Um, uh, diagnosed by ruling out other things that may be causing seizures. And, and I, I've mentioned too that you've got a, a, a national plan called Epilepsy Smart, which is aimed at providing support to individuals and families once they have epilepsy. I was wondering if there were ways, I guess, to reduce for people to reduce their chances of developing uh, epilepsy, and or is it uh, preventable at all? Um, certain parts. Uh, certain types of epilepsies uh, are preventable, and, and um, you know, an acquired brain injury is um, is a way of uh, of also getting epilepsy. So if you can avoid um, injuring your head, uh, whether it be in, a, in in sporting or or accident or through overindulgence in uh, alcohol or other substances, then uh, that's a that's one way of uh, minimising the risk of epilepsy. Um, but there are many causes of epilepsy. It could be um, it could be genetic, uh, where your seizure thresholds are, are lowered because of um, some, um, you know, genetic mutations that happened through all of us. But uh, in this case, they happen to be in the areas of the brain that, that control your neuronal activity. Um, uh, some uh, forms of epilepsy are caused by um, infections of the brain or encephalitis, so um, avoiding the risk of those things is, is another way of uh, reducing your risk. Um, and some types of epilepsies are caused by your immune system, so it's it's sometimes a, a difficult uh, condition to understand fully, which is why our sort of education and training programs and our Epilepsy Smart programs we think are really important so that people can understand epilepsy and how to support people living with it. And I think, um, you know, when you talk about support and we talk about people, but especially in young children, it's one of those things where, you know, early um, education for how to deal with people with epilepsy can go a long way in making sure that, um, you know, there is no stigma attached to having those seizures as well. Yeah, so, look, so um, you know, one of the things, one of our most important programs uh, is called Epilepsy Smart Schools. And... Uh, we think it's most important because, you know, the early you can support uh, kids living with epilepsy to make sure that their, uh, their epilepsy is understood and well managed in the school setting, uh, that they can get the best out of their education. Um, and everyone knows that, you know, a good education is really a key, key to success in life. So uh, we think that's really important. And, and the third part of the Epilepsy Smart Schools is, is that schools either, you know, use uh, curriculum for, for all the students that help everyone in the school understand about epilepsy um, and or, or, or run, run some uh, whole of school awareness or understanding activities around epilepsy. We think that's a really important way of just reducing the stigma associated with epilepsy. Now I mentioned that uh, in a couple of Sundays time on the 20th of October you've got your fundraiser, the Warfare Epilepsy, which I'm sure 
you know, can help educate the community about this condition. Can you tell us a little bit about what you have planned for the day? Okay, so um, it's um, it's at Princess Park in Carlton, and um, if people go to the walkforepilepsy.com.au site, they'll they'll see all the information on it. Um, But it's uh, it's on the the end of Princess Park that's sort of furthest away from uh, the city, um, just near Tram Stop 17. Um, people can check in from 9am and the walk commences about 11. Uh, people can either do one or two laps of Princess Park, so either 3.2k or 6.4, depending on how they feel. Um, there's food and um, some entertainment, a sausage sizzle, sizzle, there's plenty of water available. And the course is fully accessible, so um, mobility scooters, wheelchairs, prams, uh, you know, everyone can can participate. And uh, uh, last year was our first walk for epilepsy. It was a fantastic mm. day. Everyone had a, a great time, and we're just looking forward to being bigger and better this year. And if people, you know, can't attend the event, how can uh, they get involved? I know you've got your um, epilepsyfoundation.org.au website and obviously, yeah, Walk for Epilepsy page is there, but how else can people support you? Um, look, um, we've got opportunities for people to volunteer to uh, for the event for the day, uh, which is also on that um, walkforepilepsy.com.au website. Um and uh, people can be, get behind the people that are fundraising for the walk um, on that page. Um, I think uh, the fundraising total at the moment is 66842 as of this morning. Mm. Um, we're, uh, with three weeks to go, we're pretty uh, excited. We'll get to our uh, target of, uh, of uh, around $150,000. So uh, we'd love people to get on board and, and, and support us so that... Uh, People with epilepsy understand they're not alone. The community is getting behind them. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Greg. We appreciate that. I did. Um, I did have uh, you guys on last year, and I was trying to find out whether it was the first one last year. But obviously, this hopefully becomes a, an annual event, and um, it just keeps going from strength to strength. Yeah, and um, look, there's a there's a nice video on that uh, website page uh, from Rebecca Madden, who's uh, is our ambassador for the event, and. and uh, She'll be there walking on the day, I'm sure she was last year. So, uh, um, you know, we just hope uh, people can come along and um, join in as part of the fun. Well, thank you, Graham, and uh, hopefully see you in a couple of weeks' time down there at Princess Park. And uh, we'll put your details on our website as well. Look forward to it. Thanks for having me on, Dave. Thank you. And that was uh, Epilepsy Foundation CEO, Greg Graham, she is, sorry, talking to us about the Walk for Epilepsy. I'll go to a quick song before we get our next guest in. You and me by the dregs. Like the sun chases the wind, I'll follow you to the sea. Free to go to a place we don't know. Run away with me
just a little taste of the Bribey Island. Or I always say Bribey Island, but a lot of people say it's Bribey Island. I think it is. is yeah, I think it's Bribey, yeah. Oh, no, my English is better. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone, you're listening to 3CR, and we now have Jonathan Holloway in the studio. So Jonathan is the director of the Melbourne International Arts Festival, and it's one of the world's leading arts festivals, as we all know. Um, it's here for 19 days every October and kicks off on Wednesday. Thank you, John, for joining us. Oh, thank John. you for being here. No worries. Um, so firstly, can you just tell us a little bit more about how you came to direct the Melbourne International Arts Festival? Yes, uh, they asked me. And um, <laughs> oh, I've got nothing done on these five years. <laughs> it's that simple, it's that, isn't it? Uh, so I was, I used, uh, I've been running festivals for a bunch of years. I was in Perth for four years um, before that in the UK running a festival, I used to work in theatres as a theatre director and one day realised festivals could work across a whole city uh, and tell stories that were kind of massive stories in the way that theatre can s- tell incredible, beautiful, intimate stories. A festival can actually kind of take a depth charge or a, a, a survey of a whole nation. Mm. And, and I thought, well, I'll go at that then. Um, <laughs> and got away with it. So uh, I've been doing that for a while and this is my final... My fourth and final Melbourne Festival. Why which is, is it the final? Because I'm leaving. Uh, because uh, I, I signed up for kind of open-ended, but I think four feels right. Yeah. Um, I have a young family. They missed grandparents. Grandparents missed them. Um, uh, arguably, they, they missed miss, the weather. Uh, missed, the, missed the weather. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, yeah, it's, it's going to be painful. But um, so are you heading back to the UK? Heading back to Europe. More Europe. broadly, yeah. My my wife is Spanish, so actually, uh, we've they've already headed back, and, and they're in uh, they're in Mallorca. Oh, uh, absolutely lovely. nobody likes me when I say that. So, um, <laughs> but not in a Christopher Case way. I mean, in a, in a kind of a strategic, <laughs> in a strategic way. Amazing. And what about this year's festival? What can you yes. tell us about? I mean, are there themes running throughout the festival this year? Uh, not so much themes as ideas. I mean, every year I kind of approach it thinking, what, what are the questions that we have to answer? I mean, this year there are to be honest, quite a lot more than normal. Mm. Um, and uh, so, But one of them is about connect, connection, about being connected to each other. Another one is about truth. I mean, we, we, uh, it seems like it's, a, it's almost a rare commodity these days. And, and whilst people sort of acknowledge that it's important, they then go, ah, yeah, but it's relative. And you go, no, quite a lot of truths aren't relative. Yeah. So things like uh, work like Anthem, uh, which is the, the new work from uh, the five... Uh, writers or four writers, composer mm-hmm. behind um, Who's Afraid of the Working Class. It's about who are we now and then not only asking the question but then listening to the answer and taking it seriously, which I, I think we've been good, got better as a, as a community asking the questions, but we haven't yet got that much better at then going maybe what those people are saying in answer should be listened to. Yeah, listening yeah. and taking on board. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I saw that it was about connection in, in a digital way as well. So um, I, I read that like you said online, um, we politely ask someone for their Wi-Fi password. That's that when you hear about connecting. Yeah, that's, that's right. The <laughs> yeah, community is connecting. And it's yes. so true. And so, it is. are some of the themes this year um, or subjects about about that reconnection? About about liveness, about being in the room, about actually being together, uh, yeah. and because that's the only way anything's going to change. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the allu- uh, I don't know, I'm not. I'm sounding political now, but the the illusion of doing something uh, by typing something uh, is huge, and you go, well, I know, I, I reshed that 
So, uh, mm. come on. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm Martin Luther King. Look, everybody calm down for a minute. That's actually not that much. Yeah. Just and you see a perfect example is you drive past any high school after school and you see three or four kids walking in a group. Yeah. And they're all texting the person they're walking next to, it looks like. They're not talking, but they're all on their phone. Whereas for me, after school was the best time. Ah, you're yeah. walking home to go and catch a train because yeah. that's when you talked about the day. Yeah. yeah. Just, yeah. Better freedom. Yeah. And well, well, at some point, I think people will realise that, that, yeah, just checking your phone is the absolute equivalent of looking over somebody's shoulder at a party mm. while you're mm. talking to them. Mm. Uh, obviously, that's never happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, but it's true. But it's yeah. just literally looking around the room for someone more interesting. Yeah. Surely, surely somewhere in the world, someone else is awake, not you. I know. Like, and anyway. the conversation always starts with not setting it up. It's just like, what do you do <laughs> like, and then that's how it was yeah. in the old days you'd sort of go oh you know how do you know bill yeah and then, yeah, then yeah. you get to that point but now people just mm. and then they move on obviously if you're not interesting enough too, to yeah. their phone yeah, yeah. yeah. so fine. so so the festival for me it's about hundreds of moments of being able to come together with other people to see great music watch great dance uh, hear amazing stories uh, be part of something incredible mm. And do you think that an arts festival is a direct reflection of its director? Um, to <laughs> some extent. Is there a part no, of you no, in I, every little act that you've... I, I think, I think uh, in, in the same way as... Uh, no, I don't, actually. I, th- I think in, this, in the same way as I think the, uh, that the diagnosis is, is not really a reflection of the doctor. I think if you're doing your job correctly um first of all i think it's a reflection and 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 uh, and, a, and a, a mirror back to the place you are and if you're doing it really well nobody spots that uh and then you don't tell them on radio because why would, i mean <laughs> yeah that'll be a school schoolboy error yeah. uh, but no i, I think it, it it's more about the city the people the audiences the artists than it is about the director you're, you're the you're the person who makes it happen and tries to see the the bit that people want or need mm. um uh, but then again actually i say that actually the better metaphor is probably a chef so yes i think there probably is a reflection of the taste mm. of, yes. of, a, of a person but you're not feeding yourself you, you yeah. i've seen most of the things in in the festival um your your hunter gathering mm. um, yes. i read that article about bees so now now, now i'm trying to build <laughs> myself up to being a hunter gatherer yeah. let's face it yeah. if i'm a hunter gatherer we, we're, gonna, we're gonna need to make sure mm. there's a, uh, there's a wall that's nearby I was really in- interested and excited to see there's a lot of acts coming out from Asia, parts yeah. of Southeast Asia, China, right, right to spring, yeah? Yes, Yang Li Peng, uh, yeah, right to spring. That looks, looks incredible. And it's the Bai people from Dali, I think, in Yunnan. Is that, uh, it's, 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 well, it, it, the, the piece is, uh, inspired by, um, by both, uh, Tibetan and Taiwanese folk stories as well as, and Taiwanese folk stories. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay. Um, mm. and, and so what's interesting is, uh, that obviously that's, that's quite tense in a Chinese conversation. But yes. I, I, but the, uh, the work itself mm. is non-narrative, although it's the rite of spring. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Yes. But again, I, I think we, we can keep reflecting on our proximity to Asia as a, mm. as a, as a nation. Yes. I think that's what's exciting about this part of the world. I, um, yes. I, I, I thought eight years ago when I came over here, there's no point in traveling this far and then not actually thinking about mm. where we all are. And go, Ghost Gamelan. Yeah. 
is also in front. Is Which in is interesting because it brings together Sushila Rahman uh, with mm. uh, the Gamelan players. And that's, that's fascinating because I mean, she was born uh, in Sydney, um, but actually has spent most of her life in London. But obviously, as a South Asian artist, she's uh, an artist of South Asian heritage, is really, really playing with that idea of, um, of what music is. And the result is, is transcendent. But it also, it's, it's reminiscent of, of uh, Dead Can Dance or Cocteau Twins or, or what Nitin Sawney, who's also in the programme, was doing with uh, British Asian music uh, 20 years ago. Wow, amazing. Jonathan Holloway on 3CR. Yeah. And um, what, do you, what are you first? I know every, every act is going to be incredible and exciting enough, but what are you looking forward to this year bringing to, the, bringing to Melbourne? I, I, I'm really happy we have a Spiegel tent. Um, uh, mm. the, the thing you, there's this sort of pause and people nodding, oh, everyone loves the Spiegel tent. And they do. It's just a, a kind of a magical place to put can work. You, can you talk a bit more about what that is, the Spiegel tent? Yeah, so Spiegel tent, a uh, hundred or so years ago, uh, they were built as touring village halls basically they they hold a few hundred people uh, it's made of wood with uh, with glass usually stained glass around it in a circle um uh, and uh, spiegel obviously, uh, obviously for uh, i learned because i learned about spiegel tents not obviously <laughs> means mirror so they're mirror tents and so a lot of the inside is decked out in mirrors but in a kind of a, a fantasy way of uh, sort of reflecting but 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 not a horrific does my hair really look like that way? But more in a kind of a, don't we all look beautiful? Uh, shouldn't we be drinking absinthe kind of a way? I mean, obviously not. Not this morning at 8 o'clock. However um, you want to start your Monday, that's your business. Not judgmental. And, uh, <laughs> is that, that is, isn't that? And, um, uh, and so uh, that idea, that, and then inside there are booths and then a central area. So it's kind of laid back, casual, great acoustic, great wow. feeling. Um, so the idea in a Spiegel tent, you go in and, and you just, you take a look into all these mirrors, or do you have an act? No, there's, there? there's the mirrors around the pillars. So there's oh, lots of little yeah. mirrors rather. It's, yeah. more, it's, more like a, it's more like an exploded mirror ball than it wow. is um, than it is going into uh, the wrong section of Ikea. Put it that way. <laughs> and we haven't uh, had it I'm in not advertised by anyone. So. We haven't had it in Melbourne no, before, have we? Yeah, there's, no, there are a couple yeah. of, there are a couple, basically a Melbourne Spiegel tent down the road is owned by Circus Oz okay, and runs, yeah. I think, year-round. And, and yeah. the famous Spiegel tent, which is the one we've got, has been for the comedy festival. And I think yeah. it's been to the festival before. Oh, yeah, it yeah, definitely yeah, has. Yeah, because yeah, I remember, yeah. the. Fr- I think, now I've been a little careful, but I think the first one was actually used in Adelaide. And I remember the Adelaide people getting very indignant because the Melbourne people, you know, there's a sanity. So I got this figure, and it was our idea. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, if you, if you put aside the whole of, Berlin, uh, of Belgium. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Netherlands exactly, um, exactly. and Northern Europe. Absolutely. 100%. No, Adelaide completely got there first. <laughs> and, and I think we should remember that. <laughs> yes, indeed, um, indeed. Quite rightly so. But it's, this one, this one was uh, built over in, in, uh, in Belgium, and it's, but it's been based in Australia f- since uh, this, this tent since it was built in 1926 I think it was brought over in, wow. the, in the 80s it's gorgeous. I've never heard of a Spiegel tent before oh, I really? like oh, it's yeah. Um, yeah I saw a great burlesque show there a little while ago and yeah, yeah. yeah it's just perfect awesome. <laughs> so we've got a whole series of work in there uh, yeah. um, uh, from What Girls Are Made Of which is a brilliant kind of gig theatre piece um, I'm going to go I'm seeing that one yeah can you talk yeah. a little bit more about that particular I can so Cora Bissett uh, whose story it is she was in a band called Darling Heart in the 80s when she was um, maybe early 90s when she was 
would have been 90s actually because she was uh, 16 years old and she was too young to sign the contract the band was really successful her mum signed the contract um, they went on support uh, they supported Blur they supported Radiohead then the second album came out they were dropped and no one had any interest in them and uh, and it's about her story in the music industry as a as a very young woman and how at that time uh, women had a really difficult time in the arts mm. um because of the way that people behaved obviously uh, 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 can't even finish the sentence anyway um so it's really it's a, it's both an important story but also a brilliant story yeah. and and really uplifting and it's her her story about the rest of her life going into theater um and she's fantastic and there's a her live band is on stage with her, and so they play. Uh, they actually play the hits of many of the bands they played with, wow. with her singing off the charts, great. And then at the other extreme, there's um, there's a really good magic show by um, Scott Sylvan mm-hmm. called Wonders, which is sort of it. it, it I was. Uh, it's not. It's not for grown-ups. It's for all ages. But it's 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 not a kids show. Mm. I always think there's two two branches of magic there's the pulling a rabbit out of a hat mm. end and then there's pulling a hat out of a rabbit yeah. adult end yeah. and in the middle is uh is this sweet spot uh that scott sylvan occupies which is about mind reading and illusion and misdirection yeah i've spoken to somebody who went to that the other year and said it was mind-blowing like yeah. completely on a full other level yeah. um yeah and that's the whole dinner event and everything like that uh, so, well. so he's doing two things he's doing a dinner event which is oh, at okay. alpha 60 and then uh, a chat to house and he's doing wonders which is in the spiegel tent mm-hmm. and the final show in the spiegel tent is gender euphoria from yes. melbourne so yep. you get uh, we get to bring work from across seas and yeah. we get to say this is something from here that has to be seen again yeah. more davy mama alto absolute geniuses oh, what an exciting it. program yeah. it sounds amazing it sounds incredible yeah. for 19 days of just crazy excitement times how are you going to be kicking it all off on wednesday and why um is this festival so important to melbourne we start on Wednesday with Tandera, mm-hmm. which is really important. That's the first nations of the land, the first peoples, five language groups of the Kulin Nation coming together. They've been working for months. And what we see and experience is, is singing and dancing around a fire in the centre of Federation Square and a coming together of peoples. Um, but it's a culture, it, it's, it's, a, a tradition that went on for tens of thousands of years and stopped a couple of hundred years ago and the festival has been part of inviting it to well saying to the the first nations well, wha- if you were to open the festival what would you want to do mm-hmm. and that's what they said and why is it and so that's how we start with the first nations the first voices um and then move straight into yeah as i say 19 days of of, of performances why is it important because um, more people will come to the festival in the first week than go to the AFL Grand Final. More people uh, in Australia go to the ballet year-round than mm. go to, um, again, they go to f- uh, football or rugby combined. It's a wow. huge part of what we do, and we don't acknowledge it. We, we mm. I don't know if people are embarrassed about it, but we sort of don't mention that 88% of Australians go and see a live cultural event every year and 44% go and see a live sporting event. I'm not saying it's a competition, but <laughs> it's... If it was, <laughs> we'd be winning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're winning unless there are actual tests, and, yeah. then, we'd be, and then we'd probably not be... Hey, moving on. Uh, it's just that wonderful... It's a wonderful celebration of what Melbourne is, one of the great 
cultural cities in the world um, and we get to, to do it without any embarrassment or shame. We get to be proud to say, yeah. yes. nailing it. Mm. I have right. a friend from Sydney who's 85 this year. She's been coming for the last 15 years. Wow. She will not miss it. No, it's fabulous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fabulous. So, and she, she really knows the art. She's passionate, obviously, but she reckons this is the best festival. Oh, yeah. And just really quickly, um, is the best place to go online? Online. Onto the website? Yeah. Let's find true connectivity. Yeah, Google it. Um, obviously, I'd like to say, I'm not advertised by any of the people I've mentioned this morning. That's, I've, I've done three, three brand references. I've never made a brand reference in my life. Online, you can find out all about it by going to Yahoo and, Google, and uh, Googling Melbourne Festival. Or you can go into any, most cafes and bars um, have, um, and betting shops, of course, have, have the brochure. So please, uh, yeah, find a brochure, go online, find stuff buy some tickets come and see the free stuff we'll Amazing. see you all yes. for the next yes. month yes. thank you thank you so much was, Jonathan uh, Holloway Jonathan Holloway uh, yeah, thanks to Nibs and it's time our guests too for yeah. Women on the Line apologies for that but I'm out of time see you all next week thanks for listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR <laughs>